Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Ivory. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. This is what freedom sounds like. At least according to Mimi Stillman. Stillman is a world-renowned flautist who the New York Times once described as a consummate and charismatic performer. She's the founder and artistic director of the Dolce Suono Ensemble, a chamber group based in Philadelphia. And Stillman is also something of a historian. She brings both interests, history and music, to bear on her latest release. It's an album called Freedom. Freedom features works by three composers who draw on political upheavals and the personal tolls they cost in Iran and Europe. In particular, the composers consider the impact of such tumult on members of the Jewish community. Stillman is joining us on Vox Tablet today from a studio at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Mimi Stillman, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you, Sarah. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Before we dig in, I need to take care of a little bit of quick business. Tell me, how do you prefer it to be pronounced, flautist or flutist? That's actually the question I get asked most. And uh, <laughs> today, flutist is, is much more common. Both are OK. Flautist is still used in the UK, actually. But let's go with flutist. OK, flutist it is. Why freedom? Why was that theme on your mind? You know, it's actually quite fortuitous in the sense that the CD is the culmination of about a six-year journey of musical discovery and research and planning. And um, the earliest work on it, well, the earliest work that came into my life was my commissioning of composer Richard Daniel Poor to write Remembering Neda, trio for flute, cello, and piano for my Dolce Suono Ensemble. And as other pieces um, came together, I realized that I had three compelling works, really rewarding musical experiences for my colleagues and me. They're also connected by this really important thread of thinking about artistic freedom and just the universal human need to be free. Well, you said you started working on this album six years ago. What was the uh, impetus? What, what sort of catalyzed this whole project? It's interesting because um, I I don't think that I always knew that all three pieces would work together in in such a perfect way when I started out. Um, It's three premiere recordings, so works that have never been uh, recorded before. After we had commissioned Richard Daniel Poor to write for our trio um, at the same time. It was the summer of 2009 when he was writing the piece. Uh, It was the Green Revolution in Iran, and the Iranian people were rising up against the government um, for their freedom. And that was when Richard, who is an American of Persian Jewish heritage, uh, was captivated by the news and especially by uh, the murder of the young woman Neda Aga Sultan. She was shot by government forces and her death on the streets of Tehran was captured on video that went viral around the world and that's when he was inspired to to think about the Iranian people's struggle for freedom in our peace but also to reflect very personally on his own family background. And the result is a work that's just really deeply emotional, not just as a piece that involves me as a flutist, but just as a work of art, I think. And then when I commissioned David Finko, um, also a Russian and 
emigrate to the United States composer to write the sonata, it kind of also came from a really compelling personal story. I really connected with him and his music. Um, I'm Jewish and my great-grandparents were mostly from Eastern Europe. He is a Jewish composer who's Russian, whose family was persecuted in World War II by the Nazis, and then also he suffered persecution as a Jew and as a composer, as an artist um, in the Soviet regime. And I thought his music really speaks to me, and I think that he has, he has more to say, I have more to say through his music, so I commissioned him to write a sonata for flute and piano. And then the piece of the puzzle that I really never dreamed would happen um, was uh, Mieczysław Weinberg's five pieces for flute and piano. Um, what happened was in the summer of 2011, I was doing some research on music of the Holocaust for a project of my Dolce 101 ensemble. So I met with Brett Werb, the musicologist at the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and had a great discussion. And kind of by chance, toward the end of that talk, he, he says, oh, incidentally, I picked up a score in St. Petersburg. It's a flute and piano piece. Do you want to take a look? And I thought, well, of course I want to take a look. And I was just really impressed by the beauty of this piece that had languished in a St. Petersburg archive since shortly after its premiere in 1947. Wow. Let me just understand, when you were at the Holocaust Museum and your colleague there said, do you want to take a look at that? Did that mean that you just looked at the score and you could tell by looking, by sight reading, you could tell by sight reading that it was a nice piece? Or did you have to take it and find uh, musicians to play with you and, and hear it out loud? I actually love that question because the moment the score was in my hand, and this was a facsimile of uh, a publication by the Soviet Composers Union published in 1948. It actually kind of looks handwritten, even though it was published at the time. And I started looking at it and playing the music in my head, and I thought, wow, this does look like it sounds really good. So then, of course, the very next thing I could do is grab my flute as soon as I got home with it and play it, and then grab my duo pianist of 14 years, Charles Abramovic, and play it together with him. So it was kind of both. Like, I, I saw on the page that it looked really compelling, and then, of course, once, once we actually made the music, I knew that I loved it. Let's listen to a little bit of the Weinberg. Great. Now, Weinberg is the one composer on this album who's deceased. What can you tell us about his life? Who was he? Mieczysław Weinberg was a Polish Jew. He was born into a musical family in Warsaw. 
where his father played violin and composed and conducted for the Jewish theater. So Weinberg was exposed to music very early on. He even played alongside his father as a child. But then the whole life of the family, um, <laughs> along with many other Polish Jews, was cataclysmically interrupted um, when the Nazis invaded Poland. And actually, Weinberg was able to flee over the border to the Soviet Union, but his entire family was murdered in the Holocaust. And he actually only found out their fate 20 years later. He didn't know exactly what happened to his family. And, and this, of course, is something that he had to contend with in his art throughout his life. Um, he, he first was in Minsk and then in Tashkent and then fortunately was invited to Moscow by Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, one of the best known uh, Russian composers of the 20th century, just a major composer, uh, Shostakovich was impressed by Weinberg's score to his first symphony, and the two of them began a very a fruitful artistic friendship. Um, they were even in a lifelong race to write more string quartets, both being very prolific composers. Um, and so Weinberg established a pretty important career writing concert music, writing film music, um, and writing, uh, especially what I would be interested in, in as a solo flutist and chamber music flutist, um, a good bit of flute concert music. Mimi, from what I read, you uh, have been playing flute a long time. In fact, you were the youngest wind student ever accepted at the Curtis Institute of Music, which is a very illustrious uh, conservatory in Philadelphia. You were 12 years old at that time. Tell us a little bit more about your musical background. How did you get started? Yes, and, and thank you. I got started playing flute when I was six. I had been playing recorder for a year. My mom, who's played clarinet off and off her whole life, had taught me recorder and how to read music, and I grew up hearing a lot of music, and especially winds in the house, because my older brother had also seen my mom playing clarinet and decided to play clarinet. So within a year of playing recorder, I told my parents that I wanted to play the flute. I had just fallen in love with the sound of the instrument and wanted to make it my own voice. And early on, I knew I loved performing. I loved learning music. And um, I ended up going to Curtis, uh, as you mentioned, when I was 12. But it was a very unexpected thing or the way that came about. Uh, I had met legendary flutist Julius Baker at the National Flute Association convention in my hometown of Boston when I was 11. And he had actually already been my favorite flutist for a few years by that time. And he asked me out of the blue, having met me, if I know any Mozart. So I responded that yes, I know the Mozart Concerto in G. And he asked me if I would play it right then and there at his demonstration for Yamaha before an, uh, before an audience. So I thought about it for about 30 seconds and said, of course. Um, so I performed, and then he invited me back the next day. And then shortly after that, I began studying with him, and he suggested I apply to Curtis. So I never expected I would be going to conservatory, let alone Curtis, at that age. Um, but it just changed my life and started my career in the most exciting way. So what was it like to be there at such a young age? I mean, I imagine the halls were filled with very, very proficient, more than proficient, I mean, with tons of, you know, prodigies. Was it uh, a strange experience? Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a young person in that environment. 
while many people ask me, was it strange to be so young, surrounded by mostly people in regular college age? And I have to say no. I mean, only much later do I realize how young I was at the time. I, I was I always just kind of felt really natural and kind of like myself. And I was having a blast and I was making music. And I think people of all ages and backgrounds come together to make the music at a place like Curtis. And that's kind of what always felt very normal to me. <laughs> Now, you mentioned him before, uh, Richard Daniel Poor. He was a, a peer of yours at Curtis. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of his piece, uh, Remembering Neda, Trio for Flute, Cello, and Piano. We're going to listen to Lamentation. Um, in this movement, you hear um, the lament, the, the sadness, the tragedy of the death of the young woman, Neda Agasotan, murdered by government forces in Iran. Um, but... Richard also inscribes elements of Persian traditional music that he remembers hearing as a child. Um, his parents took him to Iran for one year um, to visit family when he was very young. And he actually has the flute cello piano evokes some of the Persian instruments. So in this movement, you will hear a melody that I play on alto flute, which is a larger and deeper flute than the normal one. And he thinks of the timbre as evoking the Persian ney flute instrument. There's also just a repetitive, insistent, almost droning rhythm in the cello and the piano throughout the movement or throughout the whole first part, which which leads and kind of weaves and is transformed throughout the piece in the third movement. It, it's both resignation um, and hope with kind of emerging from this rhythm. And then the movement closes with a really heartrending cello solo that you hear and that has a lot of sort of Persian melismatic or chant-like elements in it. I have a question for you about commissioning work. I wonder, how much direction do you give the composer when you first reach out to them? Well, I love commissioning new work, and as a solo and chamber flutist, I've always kind of noticed uh, with some chagrin that my repertoire is not as big as violin, piano, cello repertoire. So for me, commissioning um, gives me an even uh, more exciting diet of music to play, as well as hopefully launches to the world more great music that other people can play in addition to myself. Um, but I do commission a lot, and, and I, I choose composers whose music I know really well. Um, you, you asked about how much guidance I, I, I give to them. I think of it as being um, really the product of a dialogue because I, I want 
music that inspires me from artists who inspire me but they write their most inspiring music when they find the theme is inspiring so it's kind of um matching up the project with the right musical voice and then talking with that person and seeing what emerges from there so we didn't actually know when i first talked to richard about writing something for flute cello and piano we didn't really know what would come out but i've known him a long time he's he's a faculty member where he teaches composition at curtis institute of music so as a student i had played a lot of his music a lot of his students music i was kind of a uh, composer nerd sitting in at composition classes and learning as much as I can about it, even though I was a performer, not specifically a composer. And, and so I knew that he would write us a great piece, but this through talking, we found we had a lot of connection on this Jewish element. And um, Richard has written in his program notes that this is the first time that he's reflected in his own work about his Persian Jewish heritage and that he's gone on to do it more in his music after this piece. The last composer on this album is David Finko, who you mentioned a little bit before. We're going to go out with a piece of his. It's called uh, Sonata for Flute and Piano. Tell us a little bit. What do you like about it? I think that David's Sonata for Flute and Piano is a very moving work and in a, in a wonderful contribution to my repertoire for Flute and Piano. Um, Charles Abramovic and I, we've been performing as a duo for 14 years now. Um, when we first got, got the piece, when David wrote it in 2012, you know, we started rehearsing it, uh, we started figuring it out. Um, I think in some ways, only after we premiered it, and this is somewhat normal, we, we realized just how powerful it is and experience all together, um, both to perform and to listen to, um, because it's quite personal. Um, David st started out with thinking about his own history um, as a Russian Jew facing persecution. Um, his grandfather um, suffered in World War II and was murdered by the Nazis, actually. He was a rabbi. And he started out with this, this idea about tragedy, but then made it ultimately an uplifting work. Um, he writes in his program notes that he has uh, a very vivid image. Um, the piece starts quite desolate. His image is of uh, an empty world after nuclear devastation. And uh, the sole survivor is, is the flutist, actually, me or my voice in the piece. And I kind of start creeping out of the nothingness there um, in dialogue with piano but then gradually animating. And so in the second movement, there's a dance, then there's an oasis of calm and a kind of um, beautiful singing melody happens. Then in the third movement, it brightens just a little bit more. It becomes, I think, more humanized. You have flute and piano in a very kind of romantic but melancholy dialogue, very song-like piece. And then in the fourth movement, there's a lot of anguish. Again, he keeps bringing back anguish and calm, and it gives away to this kind of shimmering resolution that's quite hopeful in E major. Um, so whether you're a musician or not, you'll definitely feel this kind of, I think, positivity emerging from the darkness in his work. And in a way, that's the trajectory of the Richard Danielport piece, also re recorded on the CD, from the lamentation to the anguish desecration movement, and then resolving with the hopeful benediction movement. So we're going to listen to the second movement. It's called Konmoto. It's got a sort of more dance-like energy to it. Yes.
Mimi Stillman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Mimi Stillman is a flutist and the director of the Dolce Suono Ensemble. Her new album is called Freedom. It's out from ACF. Go get yourself a copy. It's great. In addition to Stillman and the Dolce Suono Ensemble, the album features Charles Abramovic on piano and Yumi Kendall on cello. If you like our podcast, please do share it. Don't be shy. And please make sure to write a review of Vox Tablet on iTunes. Through some secret Apple magic, those reviews help us get new listeners, so we welcome your feedback. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. As ever, thank you so much for joining us.